Hallelujah, Heavenly Father. We take refuge in the prophetic words that have now been fulfilled in history. In the book of Isaiah where we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with uprightness and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We confess, Lord Jesus, with the testimony of Scripture that You have come, the government is upon Your shoulders, and You are the author and the shaper, the controller of all history. According to Colossians 1, you and your pre-incarnate glory were responsible for the creation of this entire cosmos in the first place. And the glory that you had before you came to earth, Lord Jesus, if that weren't enough, you demonstrated even more glory still in taking on flesh, becoming a human, entering into your creation as a child, a baby, born of a virgin into this realm in order to secure the redemption of our souls. And now we look forward in anticipation to the day when you will declare victory over every last enemy, even death itself, by placing them under your feet. As we welcome this new year, we welcome it as representatives and ambassadors of Jesus Christ, who knows the end from the beginning, who has created this world in the first place and now governs it upon His shoulders. We confess, Lord Jesus, that any failures and fear and faults on our part, Lord, failing to recognize Your power, are nothing but the sinful dregs and veil of the old man. And instead, we place our faith and trust in You. And now as we turn our attention to Your Scriptures, the immortal words of life, recorded for us and for our transformation. May they do their good work conforming us to the image of You, dear Jesus. I pray, Lord, this year that You would have, Father, more fruit, Lord, to glorify Yourself in this body and every Bible-confessing and Bible-believing church in this nation so that Your glory might continue to cover this earth as the waters cover the sea. Holy Spirit, it is You who opens our ears to hear and fixes the words upon my lips to proclaim. I pray that you would do this today as we open your scriptures. In the name of Jesus, amen. Praise the Lord. What a great gift to us this day to open the Holy Scriptures recorded and preserved for us against all odds and given for the exhortation for the health and life vitality of His church. I would encourage you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. As we open the Scriptures today, and let us consider several verses at the close of the chapter, verses 26 through 39. The title of this morning's message is Medicines for the Church. Medicines for the Church. The church can be anemic, can fall into disrepair at times, can grow weary, and be tending towards waywardness. Under these conditions, any body, either locally or more broadly speaking, has sufficient medicines within the Word of God to prescribe for any and all failures, faults, and sicknesses that we feel in our calling moving forward. And so today we have some of these unveiled before us in the words of the epistle to the Hebrews. 
Stand with me if you would and if you're able and let us read these scriptures together. I ask you to stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word as we consider again Hebrews chapter 10 verses 26 through 39. Here we have the immortal word of God. Verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that yourselves, that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Verse 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let me remind us this morning a bit of historical perspective that attended the way of all of the writings in the scriptures, particularly the New Testament, to some degree, These observations are appropriate for each one of the records that we have before us today. The best attested ancient literature of its era in all of history with no competitors that come even close. 5,000 some original manuscripts and counting are retained within the historical annals of those who study the textual transmission and so on, testifying to us the great treasure of the original writings of the apostles and those who are commissioned to write the New Testament, which begs a few questions in my mind for a point of perspective for us today. How often do any of us sit down with a physical pen and paper and actually compose a letter and send it to someone? In spite of all our modern conveniences and the practically free nature of paper these days, pens are a dime a dozen. You can find one lying in the street somewhere. You can certainly get one for free from almost any establishment. In spite of all of this, this activity is fairly rare these days. Certainly in comparison to the availability of our opportunity to do so. But imagine for a moment a different era of history where paper was extremely valuable. Precious indeed. Very expensive, hard to come by. Imagine in this historical era, no formal postal service such as we have it today where there's a guarantee that our letter gets from point A to point B. No postal service like this existed except if you counted your own two legs or those of a trusted comrade willing to risk life and limb to deliver your message. 
at the risk of their own life by way of shipwreck, robbery, sword, or just the perils of ancient travel. Messages like we read today were delivered over land and sea to reach the churches from the apostles, those that were writing to encourage the church. The content of your letter, furthermore, could incriminate you if it was seen as seditious to the existing government, or maybe there were competing religious ideas around you, the Jews that would like to stamp out what they saw as this wayward sect, the way, or Christians. On top of this, the message that you had to deliver was not one of flowering compliments, but instead contained, as we see in our text today, stern rebuke for the readers, a message they may not welcome. And then consider the travel time and dangers increase exponentially over any significant distance. Given all these hardships, the content of a first century letter would be significant, or could be at least significant indeed. It becomes far more interesting the content of a letter that not only was written under these conditions, but has been preserved for us today, given all of these hardships that would attend its way. In the case of the early church, in the case of the New Testament, this, the record of these letters that we have even today, was God's providential method of preserving the gospel. Assuming the context of all these hardships and setbacks for correspondence in the ancient world, we might ask ourselves the question, what indeed might motivate an apostle to compose a letter for a church? In the case of the book of Hebrews, the answer appears and our text today. The early church, this early church outpost, received this letter, was in danger of spiritual implosion. No greater reason to write a letter, because there was an emergency of the soul that existed in this fellowship. In the face of this great emergency, Hebrews arrived at the church <coughs> like overdue medicines to counteract the infection of looming apostasy. Apostasy is falling away from someone's professed faith. Falling away from one's professed faith. So these medicines arrived with gospel correction, rebuke, and direction, and reminder of the essence, the foundation, the promises, and the power of the new covenant. Let us take advantage of this antidote ourselves today if we show any like symptoms in our own spiritual lives. Here's a heading for you today as we consider in three parts our text today. Let us consider three medicines for the weary and waywardly inclined church. Three medicines for the weary and waywardly inclined church. Number one, there is an admonition against apostasy as I've just defined it. This is verses 26 through 31. Admonition or a warning, stern rebuke a calling attention to apostasy and its great dangers. Secondly, there's an affirmation. There is a commendation of former fruit. You have borne fruits of repentance before. Remember and return, the apostle or the author is saying to this church. And third medicine this morning we'll consider is adjuration, which means a plea or entreaty, an earnest appeal, a deep, passionate request Adjuration unto faithfulness. Continue faithful in your calling. Let us consider, first of all, a medicine for the weary and wayward church, or waywardly inclined church, admonition against apostasy. 
Reading again in verse 26, Hebrews 10, our text today. Here's the warning. Here's the admonition. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy and the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserving, deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Turn with me, if you would, for a background in our te- to our text today to Deuteronomy chapter 17. This is no doubt a reference to which our author refers in the Old Covenant. Sanctions or punishments that are due the broken covenant. While you're turning there, let me make this point. There is a sobriety that our author calls the church to involved with covenant. The term covenant may be foreign to us to some degree, at least in its full-orbed, biblical context and meaning. A covenant, most basically, is a relationship and agreement between two parties. But a covenant relationship has much more attached to it contextually in Scripture. Particularly, an example of covenant in Scripture that becomes paradigmatic or a pattern for understanding the relationship is that, uh, or is that between the covenant or an agreement between a greater party or sovereign and a lesser party or sovereign. A vassal and suzerain relationship it is called. You have the greater king and you have the lesser state. The greater king allows the lesser entity, state, or people to exist within his realm, but they must follow certain agreements and must recognize that they serve at his pleasure. These kinds of relationships were very common in the Near East. Now the Lord, our God, And the God of the Israelites in the Old Testament is the sovereign of sovereigns. He himself has laid out for us throughout all Scripture an understanding of his rule in terms of kingdom. What was Jesus' primary message as he brought the gospel forward in his speaking ministry? It was the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. We've identified in the past four parts of kingdom, there's the sovereign, There's his subjects, there's his realm, the reach and extent of his kingdom, and there's his law, that which he demands or requires. Now the relationship between Israel in the Old Testament and their God was one of a lesser party or people to a sovereign Lord. And they were to abide by his law, recognizing that he was their sovereign. And on the basis of him laying out, God laying out certain terms and conditions, if they, abide, uh, if, they, if they were to abide by them, they would be blessed. Think of Deuteronomy 28. And if they were to fall short in disobedience, disregard Him, consider Him not the sovereign, the great King upon whom they owe, to whom they owe their allegiance, upon whom they must trust their futures, in whom is invested all their hope for tomorrow, if they were to, to forget that, to deny him, to spurn him, to spurn him, to turn to other gods, then there would be sanctions and repercussions that would follow. 
Now, this covenant relationship was extremely serious. Much like other relationships that have, that have, humanly speaking, the greatest potential to benefit and bless the parties involved like a marriage, so also a marriage is extremely serious. If those vows are broken, the pain and the anguish and the fallout of that relationship has ripple effects that are absolutely devastating. Therefore, the importance and the value of the relationship to the positive also corresponds to the judgment that befalls upon the party if they are unfaithful to that relationship. And this is the context of covenant to which the author of Hebrews refers. Now in Deuteronomy 17, we see how serious the relationship of the people to their Lord were when we see stipulations in the law as follows. Consider Deuteronomy 17.2. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, and transgressing his covenant. Notice that language. The great evil, the crime committed in this case, is transgressing the covenant of the Lord. Disregarding the relationship. Considering, not considering God the sovereign to be feared, to be loved, to be worshipped, to be honored, to be proclaimed and submitted to. If they turned away from him, it says, for example, in verse 3, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And so it goes, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so shall pur- and so you shall purge the evil from your midst. This is the context of sober reality that the author of Hebrews has in mind when he calls the attention of the church to their sovereign Lord. He has laid out the sovereignty and the superiority of Jesus Christ over the high priests of old. He has exalted Him and shown that His power and His character, His glory, and what He has accomplished in redemption is superior to all the angels. For to which of the angels, he writes in chapter 1, did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. There is No one in all the universe who compares to the privileged position of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. No one hears the words, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, such as Christ enjoys that privilege. No one hears, let all God's angels worship him. Why? Because he is not only a man, but he is God, the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, God in flesh. In fact, of him or to him, God makes His angels winds and ministers flames of fires that fulfill His will and do His bidding because Christ's throne as God is forever and ever. And the scepter, that means the ruling authority, that image 
in, uh, uh, conjured up in the minds of the hearers there is one of the throne, the kingship, the authority, the power, and the rule of the sovereign. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, the exalted position that is proclaimed throughout the book of Hebrews. And so the question then comes to mind, what if you do not take Jesus Christ seriously? What if you do not consider Him the sovereign authority that He truly is? What if knowing full well that he has not only retained, he not only retains this glory and authority, but he has condescended, humbled himself, given of his own flesh and blood to make satisfactory payment for your sins, and you take that lightly. You disregard it. It's old hat, it's old news, it's nothing serious to consider, nothing to see here. What if that is your attitude towards Jesus Christ? Well, there is a fearful expectation of judgment if you entertain that kind of disregard and that kind of uh, cavalier attitude about the Lord and His salvation. And notice the argument here is one of lesser to greater. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved of the one who has spurned the Son of God? We just read of the punishment in Deuteronomy 17 under the Old Covenant. If you were to go and follow other gods, disregard and break the covenant, what happens? Upon the testimony of two or three witnesses, you being man or woman, whoever the idolater was, are led outside of the city, and your fate is the death of stones. Those who are your accusers, along with all of the faithful to the covenant, as a testimony against you, come out and they take these stones and they impale you until the life is driven out of your lungs and you give up the ghost. And here under a pile of stones at the edge of the city is a testimony to the foolishness of all covenant breakers who do not consider their relationship with God seriously. But the message in Hebrews 10 is how much worse punishment do you think is deserving of one? who disregards the greater covenant, the new covenant. This is a sober reality indeed. Let us consider this seriously. Let the admonition against apostasy, falling away, disregarding, taking lightly, throwing away as so much trash, your once professed faith, let us take that so seriously, lest we ever be tempted to abandon the faith that we know full well has made atonement for our sins. If we do so, where else is there to turn? There no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. Now the meaning here is several fold. In the Old Testament, there were sacrifices that were made for sins. They were temporary, they were typological, they pointed forward to Christ, and they would cease. And as of the writing of the book of Hebrews, they had ceased. They were no longer effective to cover the sins of the people. So the message is here, the message here is, if you reject the mercy, the grace, and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there no longer remains a sacrifice. You can't go back to the old covenant. You can't find redemption and atonement for your sins 
anywhere else in life. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. Notice not only this sober reality of covenant underneath the admonition against apostasy, but also notice the core of unbelief that the author goes on to identify. If we're taking this warning seriously, would it not be helpful to know a few specifics that let us know if others or ourselves, God forbid, are turning away from our once professed faith? Three things are listed as symptoms of apostasy. Spurning the Son of God, these are in verses, verse 29. Spurning the Son of God, profaning the blood of the covenant, and outraging the Spirit of grace. Notice all three of these strike to the heart of the gospel. Love the blood of Jesus. Consider the blood of Jesus precious. In this meal before us today at the Lord's table, we commemorate and proclaim the salvation of our souls made possible through His torn body, through His shed blood. We consider this with reverence and fear today if we are true believers. But for those who turn away from the faith, they spurn the Son of God. In spurning the Son of God, no doubt, the author has in mind the root of all heresies. If you study heresies at all, you'll find that each and every one denies something of the essence and the truth of the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. Oh, He was not divine. He's God's most uh, important spirit son. Um, he's, a, yes, a spiritual reality, but not a historical one. Uh, Jesus is a really, He represents a metaphor, a religious ideal. He was a great moral prophet and teacher, a sort of literary standard to which we all should aspire. All of these ideas I just gave you are poison to the soul. Every one of them, at the exclusion of who Christ was, the divine Son of God, who was forever and eternally glorified in, in heaven with the Lord, in His presence, creating all things, the eternally existent, powerful Son of God, who then made himself low, took on flesh, humbled himself, became a man, secured our redemption, was dead, buried, resurrected in time, according to the perfect fullness of time and foreordained foreknowledge of God the Father. That truth is then applied to our hearts through the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Anything that sells Christ short of his person, work, and glory such as we have it outlined in Scripture, is to spurn Him. Is to deny Him something that He is. Imagine if someone came to you and said, you're less than human. I think you and all who share your ideas, your characteristics, maybe your ethnic background, deserve to be gassed. You're just, you're subpar. You don't share the same essence and value as I do. Well, that is atrocious to us. When we hear somebody dehumanizing a whole category of people and using that as an excuse to exterminate them, we call it something like genocide. Well, genocide is, genocide is based on a value assignment 
of one human to another that denies them something of the essence, that says you're not really made in the image of God. That is atrocious to us. We recognize that as a systemic, horrible evil. Now imagine how much worse it is to deny of Jesus Christ something of the essence of who He is. It is every bit, and indeed more so, atrocious and vile and despicable. It is to say you are less than who you are. I don't believe you. You are a liar. You are not true. I I, I make you again in my own image. The presumption, the boastfulness, the pride, the arrogance, the sinfulness of modern man who denies who Jesus Christ is. In so doing, they spurn the Son of God. Secondly, they profane those who fall away on their apostasy. From the faith, they profane the blood of the covenant. They consider the shed blood of Christ nothing special. What is commemorated at this table today, they don't think is necessary. And for some, it even becomes a grotesque thing. What is this? It's profaning the blood of the covenant. All the authors of Scripture tell us the most precious commodity in all of human experience is the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. The only power to ultimately purify and reconcile a man in restored relationship with the Holy God is a single drop of the shed blood of the only perfect sacrifice, Christ, who fulfilled the law, took on our sin and the punishment that we deserve, who shed blood, sets us free, washes us clean from our sin. But to the unbeliever, they profane this blood. I listened to a debate recently in the last couple of weeks. The atheist, atheist versus Christian, the topic of the debate is, is Christianity superior to secular humanism or is secular humanism superior to Christianity? <coughs> the atheist in the debate, semi-famous internet personality, Matt Dillahunty is his name. You can find him all over the internet. He professes to once have been a Christian, grew up in and around the faith, answered an altar call at a Baptist church, rededicated his life at a summer camp. But as he matured, as he grew older, he couldn't find the reasons he thought he should have for why his faith was real. And so the two butted heads. Matt Dillahunty, the classic apostate, against the Christian apologist. Something significant I've never heard in a debate before happened at the very end, during question and answer time. During the Q&A, a child came up to the microphone, and judging by the tone of the voice, I would guess between 8 and 10 years of age. This child said, I have a question for you, Mr. Dillahunty. Why did you used to be a Christian, and now you're not anymore? He said, I, after I grew a little bit older and wiser, I found that I didn't have any good reason to be a a Christian anymore. The child responds in this very small voice, you can go to heaven one day. Isn't that a good reason? Matt Dillahunty responds, "Oh, oh, so you think that's a good reason, do you? Let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus have to die, be killed, For my sins, the child answered, 
If he did not die, you would, have, would, would, be dead, would be dead in your sins and have to pay your own price. And at this point, there's some gasps in the audience. Matt Dillahunty says, Well, listen, I can forgive somebody without killing anything. It doesn't require blood to be shed for me to forgive someone else. He says, am I better than God because I can forgive without killing anybody? The child says, no, no one is better than God. That was the end of the exchange. I can't tell you the authority that was in that little child's voice compared to the defensive, sniveling, spurning of the blood of Christ and the Son of God. It was a classic exchange. This child couldn't tell you, I'm sure, what epistemology means. And they could have nothing to offer for the solution to hard solipsism. And these were the academic you know, ideas that were featured in the debate. But this child knew the truth. This child loved the blood of Jesus Christ and understood himself as a sinner and knew that Christ had to die to satisfy the punishment that his sin deserved. And he knew that the blood of Jesus Christ was precious. Meanwhile, hardness of heart, always learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth, the atheist went away from that exchange deserving of judgment. The fearful expectation of judgment that will fall upon one like a consuming fire that burns up the adversaries is all you can expect for one who so profanes the blood of the covenant. Let us not do this. Let us not outrage the spirit of grace. Let us not profane the blood of the covenant. Let us not spurn the Son of God. And those might be the furthest thoughts in your mind. And I pray that they are. But let us consider the boldness of the child that I just described. Would you be so bold to go up to the microphone and defend the glory, the person, and the work of your Messiah? If a child can do it, can we? Today, the Christ's name, His character, the virtues and His glories that He retains are being spurned all over the place. The blood of the covenant, even among some confessing quote-unquote churches, is being considered a common and a profane thing all over the place. This is an outrage to the Spirit of grace. May we stand against it. May we heed the admonition against apostasy. May we speak the truth that those who are in this state need to hear. That if you do not turn from your sin, but deliberately continuing, continue in it after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for you, just the expectation of judgment. Deuteronomy 32, 6-7. We don't have time to go there just yet, or, or this morning, but I, can, I would encourage you to do so on your own time. Here is the song of Moses. And at the end of his life, he is singing prophetically over the people that he has been called to minister to in a pro- prophetic way and sometimes even a priestly way. God has commissioned him to be their leader and even something of a mediator between himself and them. Moses recognizes at the end of his life the waywardness of the people 
And as he sings his song, there's warning notes. It is not a happy ending type of song, but instead it ominously declares the judgment the people will deserve and will incur if they do not take heed to the covenant. And from this song we get these quotes in verses 30 and 31 of our text. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Moses sang this. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So thus concludes the admonition against apostasy. The first medicine for the weary and waywardly inclined church. Notice that these three things, spurning the sun, profaning the blood, outraging the spirit of grace, are three categories that negatively correspond, if you will, to three categories that have preceded them. The admonition before this warning was, let us draw near, verse 22, with a heart, true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us, verse 24, consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you want to know further what antidote against this tendency to apostasy that those who associate with Christianity sometimes fall into, you can look no further than the rest of the chapter. Draw near, hold fast, and stir one another up. Second medicine for the weary and waywardly inclined church this morning, affirmation of former fruit. Now what we've just discussed is heavy indeed, but there is commendation and encouragement that this church actually receives in the same breath. Verse 32. But recall, so remember, think back to. So there's an appeal now to former experience in this church that the author refers. He says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Consider this uh, affirmation of former fruit. And first of all, enlightened endurance. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, the zeal that flooded the church initially was such that it insulated them against the discouragement that even direct and difficult persecution would bring them. They endured, after all, hard struggle with sufferings. In Acts chapter 5, the experience of the early church was very similar. The apostles are arrested, they're brought before the authorities. With boldness, they continue to preach the gospel. And as we see their plight and as we see their experience unfolding, we find verses, testimonies like this, Acts 5.39. But if it is of God, well, I'll back up. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people, some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Um, Yeah, I'll just keep reading here. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For it is this plan or this undertaking, or if this plan or undertaking of man is of man, it will fail. So this is a testimony of the authorities considering what to do in the trial of the apostles. But if it is of God, 
You will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And then verse 40, notice what happens to them under these conditions as they're detained before the authorities. When they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, speaking of the apostles, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. That would be the name of Christ, 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This affirmation of fruit that the church heard in Hebrews was similar to the testimony of the apostles when they were persecuted. The apostles counted it joy to share in the sufferings of Christ, knowing that what they were doing was so valuable that it could not compare to the suffering and the expense that sometimes the cost that must be counted when you go and you stand for Christ in a culture that stands against Him. These were the kind of endurance and struggles and sufferings that, or the endurance in struggles and sufferings that this church had experienced in their past. And now the author of this book is calling their attention to that former fruit and saying, remember that the power within you is greater than that which is without. And you even in your own testimony have overcome great odds in proclaiming the gospel at great cost. Remember, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And this that the enemy has fashioned against you in God's providence may well serve to advance the kingdom. Because those looking on will see that there is something greater inside of you than the compelling force of the raw power of tyrants to stifle and silence your words. If your conviction of Christ is the strongest thing in your life, the strongest conviction that you hold, then when it is put under white, hot pressure and testing, it demonstrates to the world that Christ is more valuable than life itself. Christ is more valuable than a comfortable existence. Christ is more valuable than assuring yourself of the American dream or pleasant and peaceful interaction with your neighbors. Many of us will only testify to the point where it threatens our comfort level, and at that point, we may feel some hesitancy. Let us repent of this and remember the former days of the church itself who endured great struggles and sufferings for Christ's sake and for ours. If the apostles had not been willing to endure persecution and even martyrdom for the sake of the gospel, these words would not be recorded for us today. Remember the hardships we laid out for you in the introduction of this message and consider the testimony of our forebears and treasure it. More so, treasure Christ. And as you do, this faith will stir within you a kind of fruit that will bring endurance. Notice this persecution was not just direct persecution. It was also persecution that came by association. It says, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession. It says verse 33, Sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Under these conditions at this time, even associating, excuse me, associating with those in prison, going and visiting them, 
or declaring yourself to believe the same thing as your neighbor who was just persecuted, perhaps even martyred for your faith, was a dangerous thing indeed. It would implicate you in the same reason that the powers that be came against your neighbor or your fellow churchmen. Would you, how would we fare under these circumstances? If one of us had to go to jail for proclaiming boldly the faith, under the threat of persecution, perhaps a law would be passed that would declare saying certain things that are biblical and true. I hate speech. This is not unheard of even in our modern context in other nations today. And say someone like myself, proclaiming what the Bible declares to be sinful as sinful, is declared a hate speaker and has to spend time in prison. Perhaps you, if you were to visit me there, would be implicated in my crime. All who associate or agree with him, we would consider them hate speakers as well. Now, this circumstance is not beyond the realm of possibility. But notice that this church, even though they were struggling at the time they received this letter, for a time they displayed the kind of faith and persistence, endurance, and zeal that they were willing for the sake of Christ and the love of their fellow churchgoers to be implicated in their own crimes by continuing to fellowship with each other. Do not neglect to meet together, verse 25, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now when we think of the things that might cause us to neglect meeting together, it might be a day that's 20 below, bad roads, maybe uh, we're just lazy and we don't value our fellowship together as we ought. You know, but those are the things that keep us apart. Wayward affections, you know, uh, sleeping in, whatever. Well, the things that actually were at stake at the time of this writing that influenced some to neglect meeting together was persecution because of their association with the church. Now, if we are guilty of neglecting meeting together for any of those superficial reasons I just talked about before, consider the testing conditions that this church was experiencing at the time of this writing. And let us pray that our faith would deepen. That we would not neglect to meet together even if we were threatened with jail time if we did so. We would still do it. Let us pray that we would still do it because our brothers and sisters in Christ are worth it and even more so Christ is worthy of our corporate praise. Finally, consider treasured possessions under affirmation of former fruit. There is a reason why the church could act this way. It's because their value set was different than it had been before they met Christ. It says, You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better position, a better possession and an abiding one. If what is guaranteed in heaven for you the full promise and manifest glory of the gospel, rest in glory. If that is what's most valuable and treasured and in the foremost of your thinking, you can gladly lay down your life for the cause of Christ. There were those who preceded a Christ's arrival that actually had this same heart and attitude. One, namely Moses, is commemorated in the next chapter, verse 24. By faith Moses when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now imagine, the creature comforts, the prestige, the influence, the fame, and the untold riches that Moses denied for something greater. 
He said, it's verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. Moses identified with a slave people who were under the thumb of the tyrannical government, both in co-opting their labor and sometimes just killing them practically for sport. Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God to associate with the covenantal people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Everything that would attend the way of a prince in Egypt. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Same attitude, same heart. These are the fruits of faith. And the affirmation of this former fruit was a medicine that the church needed to hear. It's a medicine that we need to hear. If you are truly a believer in Jesus Christ, the nature and the content, the value, and the essence of that faith you hold is as strong as what we see here. Now, it may not be tested just now to this degree, but you need not have any fear if you truly love Jesus, that you will stand in that day. Only ask that the Lord would give you confidence, avail yourself of His means. Third and final, medicine for the weary and waywardly inclined church. Adjuration or plea entreaty, earnest appeal. Adjuration unto faithfulness. Verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now this confidence is indispensable. Do not throw away your confidence. Indispensable confidence. Is this just mere resolve? To what kind of conviction does our author refer? Turning back in the same chapter, verse 19, he has already stated, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us, that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. The confidence that He is referring to is that which rushes into our heart upon the realization that Christ's death made free entry for us into the holy places with God. If we have reconciliation with Almighty God, the most difficult place to enter in all of the world, then we can enter boldly anywhere else God calls us to. If we have the assurance that He is our salvation and we will enjoy the fellowship of the Holy of Holies as it were in heaven eternal with Him, then we can have confidence to step into the fray, to step into the conditions of this world that cause us Pain, anguish, suffering, sorrows, persecution, difficulty, inconvenience of any sort. This is the indispensable confidence that the author refers to. Secondly, there's a prophetic perspective that he draws from the book of Habakkuk. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Verse 37, yet a little while, for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Taken from Habakkuk 2. If you read the context of Habakkuk, what you find 
is the prophet is complaining in anguish before the Lord. He says, how long, O Lord, will you endure with the enemies that surround us? The great wickedness thrives of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. World empires are threatening your covenant people. And more than that, your covenant people have abandoned, and once again, their relationship with you and have turned to idols. O Lord, are your promises true? How will you fulfill them? I see nothing but hopelessness all around me. The prophet complains to the Lord. The Lord answers him and says, In yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. My righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. You know, last time we were in Hebrews 10, I mentioned to you this concept of the day drawing near. Don't neglect to meet together, but do it even more so. All the more as you see the day drawing near. The day drawing near, no doubt, refers to, as we see in the context of other references there, of Christ's return and declaration of total and ultimate victory over all His enemies. The glorious second coming. Now, every stage of redemptive history lives in a state of some type of anticipation. Before Christ came, think of it, Simeon in the temple, all his life had lived to see the consolation of Israel. Tears streamed down his tree, tea, uh, Tears stream down his cheeks and prophecy spills from his lips as he holds the babe Christ and says, Behold, a light to the Gentiles. Now I can die. I can die now. Simeon had lived his life, his entire life, in anticipation of the coming Messiah. And because the Spirit of God resided in him, he recognized him when he came. But many of the faithful whose stories are recorded in Hebrews 11, their stories will go over in coming weeks, they died with the promises still outstanding. It says, Of these they were commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. There were saints of old who lived in anticipation of the coming Messiah that never saw Him come. But that faith was commended to them for righteousness, and now with us they have been justified. Christ has come. Now we are in a waiting period too. We see enemies surround us. We can relate to Habakkuk. We see a world that spurns the blood of Christ, that spurns the Son of God, that outrages the Spirit of grace. And we could cry out with the prophet, How long, O Lord? When will you return? Now at the time of the writing of this epistle, they were waiting for Christ's return, just as we do today. Do not grow weary in waiting. Remember the perspective of Habakkuk. The Lord answers him and says, The righteous one lives by faith, not by sight. He presses in, not lacking confidence, seeing what God has done in past history, knowing based on that his confidence of what he will do in future history. Christ will return at the perfect time. In the meantime, let us take advantage by preaching the gospel that one more soul may come in during this period of God's long-suffering. Let us pray for this persevering faith. Let us finally, in verse 39, be found among those, not who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. These first-person pronouns are important. The author says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. This is a very comforting thought indeed. The author, in the end, after his admonition, after his warning, after his fearful 
words of judgment deserving those who apostatize. He then says, we, identifying with them, are not of those who shrink back. You see, he has faith that the substance of the faith to those whom he writes is the same as his own, a sovereign gift of God that will ultimately carry them through, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This first person, plural pronouns, they are significant. That is, the author expects these medicines to be effective. When he preaches the warning against falling away, when he affirms the fruit of repentance that he sees in the church's life, when he adjures them unto faithfulness, he expects these means and these medicines to produce their effect. Let us remember the ground of our confidence this morning. Let us take the medicine of the Scriptures for ourselves if we find ourselves inclined to waywardness in our own hearts or weary and well-doing. Remember in this meal today what we commemorate. Again, we have confidence to enter the holy places because Christ's body has been torn and because His blood has been shed. Since we have this confidence to enter by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way that He opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, saints, today draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, knowing, fully assured, that our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank You for the promise of the gospel. We thank you for the medicines of the Scripture. We thank you for the, great, for the gifts and the means of grace that you supply to us, even in the ordinance that we partake of today, of the body and blood of Christ, represented here that has been shed for us. I pray today, Lord, as we partake in this meal together, all believers in this room, that in so doing we would commemorate you as the Son of God that we would proclaim the precious blood of your covenant and that we would magnify the spirit of grace at the Lord's table today. Remind us, Lord Jesus, of the ground and the power of our salvation, the blood that was shed for the redemption of our sins to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your Son, Father, the kingdom of marvelous light. Thank you for this day, in Jesus' name. Amen.